Hello. Good morning. Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church, where we are as a congregation making our way uh, slowly uh, through Mark's gospel. This morning, we are in Mark chapter 6, and we're going to look at a scene where Jesus sends his disciples to uh, go out uh, seemingly into the world, but to go out someplace and proclaim the good news of the gospel. This is that scene. We haven't seen that yet in Mark's gospel. Now, this is the first mission, then, of the disciples, really, the first mission of the disciples. How do you think it's going to go? How do you think it's going to turn out? It's remarkable that the results, and here this is a slight divergence, uh, the results of this first mission actually don't show up until quite later in Mark's gospel. And I want, I want you to, to hear how that's phrased. You actually have to jump forward all the way to verse 30 of Mark chapter 6. And here's what you read there. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And then Jesus says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. That's the result of the mission, but it's way down the road. And Mark is so clever by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he uh, emphasizes the details that he wants us to take from this scene. Don't be too quick to jump to the results of this, the first mission of the disciples. The result is going to be told to us much, much later. So what then are we to focus on, if not the result of this mission? Well, that's the task of the preacher this morning, and that's what I want us to see. Let me address our little theologians, those uh, children here and also those children that are watching uh, via uh, live stream. Uh, you can see me, I can't see you. But the word journey shows up in this passage. Journey. What do you think of when you hear the word journey? I want you to draw a picture for me of a journey. Let's say it's just one person, you, embarking upon a journey. And why not? I'll go ahead and tell you where that journey is going to be to. If you're a little theologian here in the sanctuary, the journey that I'd like for you to draw is the journey all the way to your car at the end of the service. And if you're viewing on live stream, I want you to draw that journey all the way to your kitchen. Isn't that funny? It doesn't seem like a journey. It's not a journey in this passage either. It's not the journey that's the focus. The people they're talking to are very, very close, maybe in the parking lot, maybe in your own kitchen. Our passage again, Mark chapter 6, the first mission of the disciples, it begins at verse 7. Before we read, please join me in prayer. O Holy Father, would you, in your great grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, make Jesus known to us in a deep and meaningful way this morning. Use your word that we might be drawn closer to you and that we might be sent into the world with great encouragement. Would you do this, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit? Amen. 
Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of our Lord. Well, we shouldn't forget what happened just before this scene. And what happened before the scene is, well, it's actually rather graphic. Jesus has just been rejected in Nazareth. And Mark has been very clear to tell us that it's not just Nazareth, it's the Nazareth in which Jesus grew up. It's his home. He knows these people, and these people know him. And he's been rejected in Nazareth, and and all Mark tells us after that is verse 6. And verse 6 says, he went about among the villages teaching. And and really, uh, what Mark is saying is that as he went about among the villages teaching, uh, really, he is going to those villages that that are close to Nazareth. This is Jesus' ministry among the Jews. Uh, Here he is preaching in those various villages uh, around uh, Nazareth. And that's what he tells the disciples to do as well. On on the backside of what seems to be a failure in ministry, Jesus doesn't go far from that place of failure. He actually stays rather local. And he continues to do ministry, went about among the villages teaching, says verse 6. And in fact, that point is so important that while I can't account for the fact that Mark doesn't state it as explicitly as Matthew, Matthew does say this as he's recounting this scene. Jesus says to to his disciples, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Now, that's in Matthew 10 verse 5. We don't have a verse like that here, but please take note of the fact that this is a ministry to Jews. It's, it's not a foreign mission, it's a local mission. And, and if you think also about that lackluster result of ministry at home that Jesus has just experienced and the disciples have just witnessed, it's almost as if what we, what we ought to expect to see in this passage is that just as Jesus was, uh, well, rejected... These disciples need to think about that rejection for themselves as well. Jesus is rejected, yet he continues to to teach, and then he sends them to uh, really a crowd quite similar to that crowd that rejected Jesus, a crowd of well-known entities. They're Jews. Jesus says in verse 4 that a prophet is not without dishonor except in his own town, among his relatives, in his own household. And in fact, when Jesus was in Nazareth, verse 5 says that he could do no mighty work there. And verse 6 says that he marveled because of their unbelief. And yet, 
he sends his disciples into a very similar, if not identical, audience. He seems to want them to experience something of the same thing that they have just witnessed Jesus himself experience. This is a ministry, it seems, in the mind of Jesus that's that's supposed to, to prove something to his disciples, to show them something, to enable them to experience something that, well, previously they had they had just witnessed. And what is it that this is to prove to the disciples, to prove to them that evangelism among people that you know, it's pretty tricky business, it's very hard labor. I don't think that's what Jesus is seeking to prove before his disciples. He sends his disciples into a crowd very similar to the one that rejected him, that he might prove to the disciples that the task that they are called uh, for, the task for which they are all about, is a task that is centered upon Jesus and only Jesus. You will notice in this passage that Jesus is continuing to to strip away who they are so that the only thing that they have is to go into an audience that is known for rejection and to offer Jesus, 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 just Jesus. And really, uh, what they're to experience is something that is uh, cosmic in scope. All of the promises that God has made to these, his people, the seed of Abraham, all of his promises to this people that they would one day uh, be restored, that they would uh, one day have favor with God, that they would one day be reconciled to him, that cosmic scope Jesus places in the hands of the disciples to carry to the seed of Abraham. And it's all about Jesus. The mission is actually cosmic. The mission that was promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, reiterated in Moses and before David. And God's cosmic mission is only possible through Jesus. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples. That cosmic mission is only possible through me, Jesus says. But at the same time as they go, he is saying that the mission of Israel... What Israel is called to do, and in fact what the world is called to do, is to listen and repent. God's cosmic mission is only possible through Jesus. That's what he's teaching his disciples. But he's also teaching them that the entire mission of Israel and the entire mission of the world and our mission here as human beings is to listen and repent. The passage seems to be divided rather uh, easily in halves, well, not halves, but in two. Verses 7 through 11, uh, we read about the equipping ministry of Jesus, Jesus and his equipping of his disciples. And then uh, at verse 12, the last two verses, it's about the disciples' ministry of obedience, the obedience of the disciples. So Jesus and his ministry of equipping and the disciples in their ministry of obeying. What exactly does this equipping ministry of Jesus look like? There's an awful lot of instructions before anyone begins preaching, before anyone actually begins that so-called journey. And I want us to notice that Jesus, he equips his disciples in three ways. The first way is right there in verse 7. Jesus really is equipping his disciples with himself, 
He equips them by giving himself to them. He equips them by calling them into a relationship with himself. This is actually very important. Look what Jesus does. He actually, he calls the 12. And that word for calling the 12 in verse 7 is really to summon them, to, to bring them before himself. It's a word about relationship. Before he actually sends them, he first calls them to come towards himself. And it's important to see that in the equipping ministry of Jesus before his disciples, he first calls them into a relationship. And only then does he, as Mark uh, phrases it, begin to send them out. It's It's a rather unique way of saying that, beginning to send them out. He began to send them out. And Jesus seems to be initiating a program of some sort, and this is the next step. He enters into a relationship with them by summoning them to himself, and only, only uh, after that happens does he uh, begin to send them out and initiating this uh, great program for which he knows, but the disciples know very little. There's a deliberate overarching plan, and he, well, he sends them out. And Jesus does a third thing as well in his ministry of equipping the disciples with himself. At Jesus, he gives them authority over the unclean spirits. Notice that verb. They don't have an authority unless Jesus gives it to them. Their authority rests upon Jesus and Jesus alone. We say, well, yes, that's very obvious. Why are you so carefully enunciating that? Well, the authority that they have over unclean spirits is not based upon their personal faith, their moral integrity, and not even, it would seem, their obedience. That power is given to them by the authority of Jesus alone. And so the first uh, equipping ministry of Jesus, I'm calling it in verse 7, an equipping with himself calling them into a relationship, giving himself to them, and and sending them on a plan that is his own plan. And then we we go to verses 8 through 9, and there's a slightly different kind of equipping ministry of Jesus. He first equips them with himself, but then he equips them by, it seems, not equipping them. He equips them with austerity in verses 8 and 9. He equips them with austerity. There's there's a set of uh, three things, three nouns that Jesus says that they should not have. Uh, No bread, no bag, no money. Now, by the way, there were three things in verse 7. Did you you catch that? The three things Jesus uh, summoning them and Jesus uh, sending them and Jesus giving to them. And here we have another three in this equipping with austerity. No bread. There's no food. It seems as though Jesus is saying, not even food for later that afternoon, not even food for later that evening. No bread, uh, no bag, probably a, a bag that would be packed in advance of a trip of some sort. Jesus says, you're not only not filling that bag, you're not even bringing the bag. No bread, no bag, and then no money in their belts, likely a reference to, uh, to coinage, to uh, metal coins. And, and he's saying, uh, don't even bring money. He does actually tell them what they can bring, a staff and sandals. You see that in verse 8. A staff is probably not a staff of religious importance. It's probably just a, a walking stick. And sandals, they can have sandals. Oh, and he does say that they can have uh, one tunic, but not two, which means 
at some point, they're going to have to do some washing. That seems to be the implication here. And what's important with this equipping by not equipping them, equipping with austerity, what's important about this image is not that this is an image of uh, the proclaimers of the gospel being beggars. This, by the way, isn't a proof text for the mendicant order of monks. It's not that. That's not what Jesus is saying, that you can only proclaim the gospel in this kind of beggarly fashion. What Jesus is saying uh, uh, beyond that is he's saying that really they are to look like Old Testament prophets. I believe that's the correct image that they're trying uh, to uh, cultivate or Jesus is trying to cultivate as he sends his disciples. The The Old Testament prophets, you see, they had very little so that by having very little, what they did have really stood out. The Old Testament prophets had very little, but they had the words of God himself. And that contrast was meant to stand out. And it's probably that that Jesus is uh, uh, envisioning as he sends his disciples. Just like the Old Testament prophets then, in their austerity, uh, they have nothing but the words of God. They do have the words of God. But they also have, what did we already notice in verse 7? They also have a relationship with Jesus. They have the words of God and they have a relationship with Jesus. So they're not entirely austere, are they? But I skipped over something in verse 7 and perhaps you noticed. They also have each other. That They have this kind of a Jesus-initiated communion. Not only does Jesus enter into a relationship with them, he uh, gives them a relationship among themselves, and they're sent two by two. It's hard to tell why exactly uh, Jesus is doing that. Some scholars think that perhaps it's because uh, the testimony of two is stronger than the testimony of one, and that Well, that's true. There are many Old Testament scriptures that make exactly that point. But I tend to agree with the scholars who say that uh, the the two-ness, the duality of them being sent, is while there might be a dual testimony, an official nature to their being together, I agree with those commentators who say that really it's as simple as you can imagine. It's that they might encourage one another. That two are better than one, says King Solomon in Ecclesiastes 4. And we see this in the uh, burgeoning church after the ascension of Jesus. Peter and John ministering together, Barnabas and Saul, and then Saul becoming Paul and Paul and Silas working uh, together. We actually see that in the history of the church. He equips them with his, well, presence, a relationship with them, but he also equips them with austerity. But they're not completely empty. They have God's word, they have a relationship with Jesus, and they have uh, one another. I want to pause here very quickly to just call out the fact that Jesus thinks that it's pretty important for his mission to destabilize their mission. If the disciples had some plan of their own, uh, Jesus sees fit to use his authority to actually destabilize their plan. Because no bread, no bag, no money... That's not their plan. In fact, the bulk of these disciples are very astute businessmen. That wouldn't be their plan, no bread, no bag, no money. But Jesus sees fit to, as he, set, as he sets his plan in motion, he destabilizes their own. 
That's painful, isn't it? He equips them with a relationship. He equips them with austerity. And there's a third thing that he does, and this is in verse 10. He equips them with, well, commands. He actually tells them what to do. And in fact, he tells them what to do in rather, in rather uh, precise detail. This is why uh, I uh, asked that our elder uh, earlier in the service would uh, read a passage about the Passover. That the Passover, uh, it isn't just uh, an escape from the bad guys. God gives uh, specific plans for how the Passover is to be experienced. There is an obedience associated with God's Passover for his people. And Jesus equips them with very clear commands. In fact, this may be helpful for some of you, but not all of you. It might be a distraction to some of you, but I'm going to say it anyway. In verse 10, you have these two verbs, and they really leap out at you in the Greek language because they are command uh, words. Uh, these, are the, these are the verbs that would actually be uh, highlighted, the verbs that would have exclamation points or italics or underlining. And there's two of them in verse 10, and they really help to summarize Jesus' commands. His command is to stay or to shake. Those are the command words in verse 10. Sometimes they're going to enter a house and they'll actually stay in that house. Uh, The the owner of the house, they won't be able to tell. The owner of the house, though, uh, will greet them in some way to show uh, hospitality so that they're not uh, kicked out immediately. Hospitality was actually a command in the Old Testament. And, And sometimes the disciples will enter a house and they'll actually be able to stay. The food will be provided. Perhaps even the laundering of their clothing will be provided. And they won't be asked for money. Although in Matthew's account, he says that the disciples ought to be willing to labor. So maybe uh, they'll have to do a little bit of work to uh, earn their keep in a particular individual's house. And, And really... Uh, It may not be desirable, those provisions that the owner of the home provides. In fact, you can count on it being less desirable than what you would find at home. They may not prepare the food that you like, the schedule of their day, the kind of labor they're engaged in, the way that they speak to you, uh, their personal odor, whatever. Those things, Jesus says, you can't control. If you receive hospitality, for some of these houses, you're actually going to stay. You'll have basic provisions met, but it's not likely going to be perfect. That's stay. And sometimes you're not going to stay, you're going to shake instead. Because sometimes you're actually not going to be received. You're, you, won't, uh, you, you won't get that kind of hospitality. It's simply not there. And, and you can complain all you want that the hospitality is not there because they are uh, disobeying God's law. But for Jesus, there's a sense in which Uh, That doesn't really matter. Your authority all rests with him. And what Jesus says, he says that if the hospitality is not there, if they don't receive you, there's something else that they might not do. Uh, If that's the case, Jesus just says, leave. Shake off the dust from your feet and leave. In Matthew's gospel, uh, this is a kind of judgment. And I think it's a kind of judgment here as well. But Mark Mark is more subtle. Shake off your feet. Do you remember Moses took off his sandals, commanded by God, because he was standing on holy ground? This is the opposite of that. It's unholy ground. Shake off the dust 
and leave. And in doing so, while they may not see this at all, you're actually exercising a kind of judgment. You don't get to exercise that punishment. Jesus does. Everything is about Jesus. Now, there's something about this that uh, it seems rather uh, practical. Uh, you, uh, you're called by Jesus to, to participate in this mission, and he equips you with himself, and he equips you with austerity, and he equips you uh, with commands. Jesus, he has the right to enter into a relationship. He has the right to remove our advantages, and he also has the right to micromanage. He's telling the disciples exactly what they're to do. And really, when you look at this thus far, the disciples really are lesser figures in the cosmic advancement of the mission of God. The disciples really are. They're not insignificant, but they're barely significant. And all of their significance actually comes from Jesus and only Jesus. And if they can do that, then they'll be able to recognize the, those homes that don't receive them. Because in verse 11, the disciples, while they might be hoping to be received, after all, that's how they're going to get food. That's how they'll be cared for. That's how they'll sleep in safety. They might be hoping to be received, but Jesus says that's not the primary hope. What's the primary hope? That they would be listened to. That they'd be listened to. God's cosmic plan, his plan to redeem the nation of Israel unto himself, his plan to uh, redeem the world, to be reconciled to the world, that entire plan rests upon Jesus and listening to him. I think that's why verses 12 through 13, where we shift from not the equipping ministry of Jesus, but rather the uh, ministry of obedience of the disciples. I think that's why uh, this obedience is here, to show us that this ministry is all about Jesus doing what God has promised that he would do. Mark is careful to tell us in these two verses uh, what it is that the disciples are doing he tells us about the equipping ministry of Jesus, but then he actually gives us uh, almost a little, uh, a little bit of video footage of what it is that these disciples are doing, even as they are anticipating one of two paths of the owner of the home, whether they will stay or whether they will shake. And I want to conclude by uh, parking us in these two verses and uh, asking that question, what is it that these disciples are doing? This is God bringing about his cosmic purposes to his people and specifically to his people. But what is it that the disciples are actually doing? And I think there's three things here that have implications for uh, our own uh, obedience to Jesus in the ministry of the good news of the gospel. And the first thing is this. The disciples, what they're doing is they're looking for good soil, you really have to look pretty far back in Mark's gospel to find out the last time that we got a big picture of Jesus' teaching ministry. In verse 6, Jesus is teaching among the villages, but we're not given the content of that teaching, just one single verse. And even the sermon that Jesus preaches at Nazareth, 
We don't learn from Mark's gospel that he's preaching from Isaiah chapter 61. You actually have to go pretty far back, all the way back to Mark chapter 4, to get the last great period of Jesus' teaching ministry. That, in fact, is the last time Jesus also called them the Twelve. And when you go back there, you find that Jesus, he's teaching parables. And these parables are about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God functions uh, independent of us. How the kingdom of God is known and experienced only through belief in the gospel of Jesus. That he is the Messiah and that he is the proclaimer of the good news. Well, how will you know if this evidence of the kingdom of God is being experienced? Well, that first parable in the parable of the sower, you, you know when you've hit good soil. You know when in the preaching of the gospel, someone says yes to the gospel. And then you know that the kingdom of God is at work. That's pretty pointed, isn't it? But what the disciples are doing in this ministry of obedience is that they are looking for that good soil. And the only way you find good soil is preaching the gospel, whether it hurts you or not, whether it leads to food on the table or not. Making the gospel known is the only way you'll find good soil. There's two more things that the disciples are doing. They're looking for good soil, but they're also commanding repentance. This is a proclamation ministry, and it's stern, it's commanding. The word for proclamation before us in this passage is a hard word. The hearers are given a clear message. You should repent. Mark makes this very, very clear. The proclamation is bold. John the Baptist did this, and in fact, we're given this same word for proclamation in John's ministry. Jesus did this at least three times already in Mark's gospel. This word applies to the bold preaching of Jesus. But there's also another evangelist in the gospel, an evangelist who is not a Jew. In fact, the first Gentile evangelist is that man who was delivered from the, the legion of unclean spirits. And what does that man do? That man, he proclaims the gospel the very same word. That man who just moments earlier was naked and deprived and unclean, Jesus clothes him and sends him into his city to do exactly what the disciples are doing here. Here, commanding repentance. And just as God's mission is only possible through Jesus, we need to proclaim that this mission is a mission in which, well, we have to command people to listen and to repent. I said there's three things, and here's where I'd like to finish. What are these disciples doing here in verses 12 through 13? They're looking for good soil. They're commanding repentance, but they're doing this. They're displaying the gospel with their own lives. They're actually displaying the salvation that they have in Jesus. Jesus, he makes their life fit this message. The way they look, the way they behave, fits the message of the gospel. They look like a people who have next to nothing, but they have Jesus and that stands out. They behave like a people who are on the very edge of existence and they need mercy. And yet they have that in Jesus. 
Jesus, he fits their lives to the message. And even though they have an important message that they are to proclaim loudly, Jesus puts them in a position of vulnerability so that they look like that message. They need the food of their host. They need the protection of the owner of the home. They need to be provided because they have nothing. But even if they're sent away, they have everything in Jesus. And here they are looking for good soil. Not by taking soil samples, but by preaching the gospel. And here they are commanding uh, repentance. And yet here they are also displaying the life of salvation in their bodies. Really, this is, this is the mission of the church, isn't it? The church is to look for good soil. And we look for good soil not by man-centered instruments, but by the divine proclamation of the gospel. And that proclamation, it's a proclamation that's stern and serious. We believe that every person must deal with Jesus. And we are commanding repentance in the name of Jesus. This is the church. And yet the church should also look like that vehicle for a proclamation of the gospel. The church mustn't be arrogant. The church mustn't find all of her strength in worldly things. The church uh, mustn't behave in such a way like we have something to offer you that is man-centered. We have nothing to offer you man-centered. Everything that we have to offer comes from God. This is God's mission being shown in just a few verses. And we're going to revisit this, but not for another 20 verses or so. But we will revisit this. What are they doing? And what should we be doing? Looking for good soil, commanding repentance, and displaying the gospel in our lives. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, our... Our prayer would be this, that you would make us as a congregation, Covenant Presbyterian Church, to be this, a church that is all about looking for good soil, that we would be a church that is courageously uh, commanding and proclaiming that there is no eternal life apart from faith and repentance. But would we also be a church that is careful to look the part according to your commands. Would you do these things in Jesus' name? Amen.